Welcome to the Bill Kelly Podcast. I'm guest host Greg Brady. So lots to get into today. When have we had a slow news day recently? Not very. Is the Ontario government's plan to reopen schools an effective one? Should there be testing in schools? And do children carry and spread COVID-19? we got to ask all these questions, and we'll get the answers that we can from President of the OSSTF, that's the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation, Harvey Bischoff, joining the show to discuss. Ontario's NDP want the PC government to restart the legislature immediately in order to address the deadly COVID-19 outbreaks in long-term care homes. And a third of Ontario's long-term care homes are reporting COVID-19 outbreaks. That's a new record for the province. How did this happen again with the experience of the first wave? We'll talk about that also. Bill Kelly podcast starts now. Today on the Bill Kelly Show on 900 CHML. Elementary schools are supposed to be back open a week from this coming Monday. And the province of Quebec, uh, which has 8 million people in it, about eight and a half. Um, so we're almost double. We're 45 percent more than uh, Quebec in terms of population is going hard on lockdown. They will close everything, shutting schools, manufacturing, construction, and they will install a curfew. I won't play politics here. We haven't seen the premier, haven't seen him take questions. Been a couple photo ops and people have been able to get a question in. And I don't know if this is increasingly so and there's more hiding out because of what what transpired with Rod Phillips. But we're all big boys and girls, okay? We can take the truth when you give it to us. That's the only way I want it. Like, give it to me straight up the middle. Um, and, and we have not seen the premier take questions. We have not seen the health minister take questions. Um, it's really concerning. And voice. look, I'm, I'm going to tell you federally, we're lacking a bit of that as well in the last week and a half. So I'm not, uh, I'm not splitting hairs here. I want to bring on the uh, OSSTF president. I really appreciate his time. Uh, he's been uh, always great, especially in the last nine, ten months uh, coming on during this pandemic um, and uh, giving us the straight goods as well. Harvey Bischoff's the president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. Happy New Year, Harvey. It's great to have you on. I appreciate the time. Happy New Year, Greg. Thanks for having me. Well, when you hear that news about Quebec, um, and I don't know how many, boy, yesterday felt like a long day. It always is. The first day after Christmas break, we all got to, you know, even in a normal circumstance, great circumstances, we stretch it out a little bit and and (laughs) maybe not a ton gets done uh, in terms of uh, intensity in the classroom when we all go back. But it just felt like a long day for teachers, for parents, for students alike. How did you view it? Well, absolutely. Um, I mean, it's the, uh, it was a long day following a, a long couple of weeks that, you know, uh, under normal circumstances would have been a break for a lot of people uh, as people scrambled to uh, adapt to, uh, you know, rather late news about the, the transition to online. And so, yeah, it was... Um, it certainly wasn't the uh, it wasn't the first day of work in the new year for a lot of uh, educators. Uh, it was just a, another one and different. What was different in terms of the, the prep for yesterday? Knowing you got you, you've got seventeen days off, and of course there's Christmas holidays. No one's expecting teachers, but but they get mentally prepped up. I know we all do with our gigs when we're on vacation. We start to ramp back up mentally and emotionally to be able to to handle it. So we're not struggling that first day. What was different about yesterday and the perspective teachers had? than, say, the first day after Labor Day, where we all had some nerves. Everybody did because we were we were in a better place with the virus, but we were still, you know, that was our first day back in six months or so. 
Yeah, and I, and I have to say there was a lot of work that went on during the break, and I've talked to to uh, you know people all around the province. There were uh, virtual meetings of teachers, you know, figuring out how their departments were going to run, uh, you know, a- adapting to. You can you can have a lot of the sort of theoretical and the foundational stuff in place, but the the day to day, hour by hour lesson planning and so forth that had to be adapted on the basis of of the announcement of of the closure. So there was a lot of work going on, um, and and that's you know. Um, that's what made yesterday different, I guess, was was preparation for something that was uh, that was you know sort of sort of late breaking and and uh, and you know always difficult. You were saying uh, earlier, you know, nobody's saying that that online learning is the best way to go, other than perhaps the minister of education, and I'm not convinced that anybody believes him. People know it's it's adaptive. It's the best we can do under the circumstances. It's important that we do it, but it's hardly the same as the return, you know, to face to face learning would have been. Harvey Bischoff's our guest president of the OSSTF, uh, the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. That's how I viewed the fall, and and you and I might differ on it, but but I viewed it, especially at the high school level. I know we spoke about it before. I was I was reasonably happy, and and I had circumstances where I I could I could send my kid to grade nine. I felt confident about the process. I felt confident about the cohorts. Less so with elementary schools. I, I'm just in a totally different frame of mind right now. I, I wouldn't feel great had I sent him yesterday. I won't feel great um, as we weigh whether to send our grade seven next Monday. Do you think most parents have that perspective? I, I believe so. I believe that there is there, there's vast uncertainty. There's lack of confidence, and it comes again. It, it you know goes back to something that you were saying again about about just give us give us the truth. Um, we can handle it. Tell us what metrics you're using to make these decisions. What happens with this government over and over again is that data goes into a black box. A decision comes out. We have no idea how how it was made. Do we actually know that this was what the medical experts, what the public health experts were recommending? We don't know that because because there's a uh, you know the, there's a confidentiality around their advice. So we don't know. I mean, the minister has now pledged that he's going to open the schools on the date that he previously announced. Well, if they were required to be closed now on the basis of the numbers that we saw, what would allow them to open if the numbers get worse? And it's that kind of uncertainty that makes people, um, you know, anxious, I think. You nailed it. Well, yeah. What makes them safe three weeks from now when they're not? And I go a step further. Uh, if it's not safe for university to be in session, even for one or two hours a day, where there's especially at the elementary level, there's no recess, there's no gym class, there's no eating together. How is it safe for 11 year olds for seven hours a day, five days a week? And and you're right. All I want is is, um, you know, an education minister who will say, hey, listen, everything's about risk mitigation right now. We're going to do everything we can. And we have great teachers, great admins, great support staff. And we're going to keep your students as safe as we can. I'd rather hear that because I know it's more truthful than, oh, you know, schools can't get into COVID. Like the, the video Dr. David Williams and Minister Lecce made in September was was ridiculous, like like as if it's going to be a fun thing and kids kids love science. So this will be cool. I, I just thought it was so insulting. You know, you have you have a, a counterexample in New York City where they said if when test positivity rates hit 3%, we're going to close down schools. Now, I can't vouch. I'm not a medical expert. I can't vote for what, vouch for whether that 3% was the right number or not. But Ontario, we've, in, we've never had any idea. At what level of community spread is it, impo- is it appropriate to close down schools? We don't know. They won't tell us. 
um, what's happening with asymptomatic, asymptomatic testing in the schools. It's been so limited that we're not getting sufficient information uh, out of that to make to make good decisions. So that's exactly where some transparency, you know, let's stop putting lipstick on this thing and pretending that it's everything is great. It's difficult. It's a struggle. It's important that we do that. Educators have thrown themselves into it wholeheartedly to do the best they can for kids. But let's be realistic about it. And that would give people, I think, a greater uh, deal of confidence than the, the kind of black box approach that they've taken. 100%. Let, let's be realistic. Uh, yeah, of course, it's the best thing for kids to be in the class. Most teachers would rather teach in person. But yeah, let's, uh, you know, let's play it straight up. So when I lay that out for you, do you uh, and I give you that Quebec news as well, that they're going hard lockdown three or four weeks beginning on what would be January the 10th. Does that make you a lot less certain that that high schools will be in class at least before February for you and your and your teachers? And, and I don't know how to judge it at this point. I know I've heard the minister, you know, repeatedly over the last couple of days say that schools will reopen, but on, on what basis and with what degree of, of, um, of risk um, is, is that going to happen? And if that's a purely political decision, that's entirely the, you know, the most inappropriate way to make decisions around education during, during a pandemic. So, um, you know, it's it's hard to imagine with the way the numbers are going right now that that reopening would appropriate would be appropriate. But the, the contradictions that come out of this government, we've got the minister saying saying on the one hand, schools are not uh, a source of, uh, of the problem. On the other hand, we're going to close them down. And if community uh, numbers go up, we're going to reopen them anyway. I don't know how to reconcile those contradictory statements. Yeah, it's uh, it's a struggle. Hey, I know your time's valuable, but uh, but so is your messaging uh, to our listeners. Thanks very much for doing this for me. Thanks, Greg. Appreciate it. Harvey Bischoff's president of the Ontario Secondary School Teachers Federation. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. Andre Picard is just fantastic in the Globe and Mail. He's been able to amplify uh, the writings of many other many other uh, people and many other people in Toronto and nationally speaking. His headline today speaks for most of us. Where's the urgency in Canada's vaccine rollout? And I mentioned last hour how I think we're having a scenario where, you know, we're wondering and hoping that needles are more into arms than they are on shelves. And that's a big, big problem right now. Um, and and listen, it, it, they're dealing with it in the United States They seem to be doing it very efficiently in the United Kingdom. So let's learn from this. Like I heard the premier say yesterday during what was a photo op that was not a press availability. And we'll get to that. Well, you're going to see everything ramp up in the next few weeks. Need them now. Need them now because people need to get there. Was There were five healthcare workers that got that's where he was. Five healthcare workers got their second dose of the Pfizer vaccine. But if we're waiting a few weeks, um, we've got a crisis right now. Like, it's a humanitarian crisis in long-term care centers in this particular province. And we need the vaccinations now. So, look, there was a lot of foot stomping from the premier. And I'm not going to tell you that it's not going great anywhere in North America. But let's have a higher bar. Let's have a higher bar. Because that's all I see. We had Christine Elliott do the, what about Alberta thing? And we had, we've had people in Canada have a little bit of smugness to them, saying, well, look at the states. At least we're not them. Yeah, we're not supposed to be. That, that's the whole point of socialized health care. That's why the Democrats propose socialized health care on such a regular basis. 
and it's devastating to get it, you know, swatted away like a basketball most of the time. Uh, I want to bring on the leader of the NDP and the opposition uh, for uh, the uh, New Democrats and the leader of uh, that party, Andrea Horvath, joins us now on 900 CHML. Andrea, thank you very much for making the time. Happy New Year. I appreciate you coming on with us. My pleasure, Greg. Happy New Year to you, too. Uh, you, you must share the same. We'll get to LTCs, but uh, I bring up that vaccination uh, news and there's an awful lot of people uh, wondering about it. There was a lot of foot stomping. Prime Minister Trudeau needs to do this. We need to know where the vaccines are. We need to know how many we're getting. That was the premier saying that. And we all probably felt that urgency from him. There's been a lack of urgency, not just in this province, but it, uh, all across our country. What's the solution for it? And what's your frustration level about it? Well, I mean, my frustration level, I think, is the same as yours and that of uh, of Ontarians. I mean, we knew that we were waiting for the vaccines. We were, you know, waiting with bated breath. In fact, Mr. Ford, you know, decided uh, sometime in December that, would, you know, we weren't going to do anything else about uh, wave two because the vaccines were on their way. But, of course, they didn't prepare. And so, you know, they didn't have a, a vaccine rollout plan uh, in advance. And this is what they've done all along. I mean, it's been very, very frustrating to watch this government never get ahead of this virus always reactionary never with enough enough urgency not planning ahead and whether that's you know preparing long-term care for wave two preparing education for wave two rolling out the vaccine uh, you know not um, following the rules that they actually put out themselves uh, it has been a debacle and and people have lost their lives as a result you know the humanitarian crisis in long-term care shouldn't have happened in the first place They forgot to actually plan for long-term care, but certainly they had all summer long to do something to prevent our seniors from dying in long-term care. Let's face it, people still to this day literally crying out for food and for water. This is what the Canadian Armed Forces uh, uncovered, you know, last spring. It's just there's no excuse for it. And uh, the Premier didn't put his task force together for vaccine um, planning until middle of December or early December even. It should have been they should have been planning for the vaccines in October, November. Um, You know, why did they wait to the last minute? Uh, It's just people's lives are at risk here. There's money that's still sitting waiting to be invested in COVID-19 response. And instead of spending the money, um, you know, on 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 COVID-19 response, he's sitting on it while people lose their lives. Andrea Horvath is our guest leader of the NDP. Is it your contention and your uh, take that the second wave of uh, of deaths in the LTCs are far more at the door of the Conservative Party than the first wave? Is there enough blame in the first wave with A, the lack of knowledge about the virus, Andrea, and B, let's face it, 15 years of the Liberal government as well? And and I'd say that all the parties just not pushing together to say this is something we all need to solve. It wasn't as much of an election issue ever as it probably should have been. Actually, that's I have to disagree with that. In, in fact, in 2005, okay. uh, and five, honestly, I can remember being on the campaign trail uh, and, uh, with uh, not 2005, 2007 with Howard Hampton, the leader at the time. And he was saying to the media, doesn't anybody care? There are people with soiled diapers for, for three days in a row with bed sores, they four inches deep. Doesn't anybody care? So I have to say, we have put in, into the legislature numerous times 
I mean, I can remember in 2005 being on Catherine Street North in my riding, talking about seniors sweltering in the heat in long-term care homes. So, you know, really, uh, the bottom line is the Liberals certainly did have 15 years. The Conservatives started the privatization of long-term care. The Liberals kept it going. Here we are now. And yeah, there's a lot of blame to, uh, to go around. But at the end of the day, let's get the investments made. Let's get the profits out. Uh, let's actually let the commission that the Conservatives actually appointed do their jobs instead of trying to shut them down uh, so that we have, you know, more of the, the roadmap that's necessary. But for many, many years, the four hours of uh, minimum uh, hands-on care for every resident has been something that we've been pushing for. Uh, getting profits out, we've been pushing for. I mean, you know, it's um, it, it, there's no doubt that the wave one was one thing, but but they didn't even... Think about long-term care in wave one. I mean, this is what was being said, you know, early on, is that they forgot to plan uh, for the most Mm. vulnerable Ontarians during wave one. But there's certainly no excuse uh, to have gone through the summer while Ford did his little kind of election uh, victory lap uh, instead of putting his nose to the grindstone and preparing for wave two. And so the humanitarian crisis that we we are now in uh, is inexcusable, and it's 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 just so so tragic. The pain, the anguish, can you the see, can you see with awful. Can you see a bridge to where the three parties, the three major parties, can work together on this? That's is that basically the olive branch you're holding out in hopes that Queens Park is recalled, legislature sits, and um, and, and let's face it, that there probably needs to be some conciliation to get all three parties and every single MPP. This should be in the interest, long term and short term, of every single Ontario resident and. Every, we're all going to age. It should be in the interest of everybody to work on this together, shouldn't it? No, well, you know what? We've already put a platform plank together. Uh, that was our first platform plank that we announced a couple of months ago uh, to overhaul long-term care and home care. Uh, but certainly, I mean, I've said to the government, call the legislature back, get the MPPs back, get the government, the official opposition, and the independent members back into the legislature uh, to, um, you know, to, to start hashing this stuff out. Some of that will mean providing the government with uh, with ideas, with suggestions, with recommendations, uh, you know, through debate, through other channels, uh, which we've been doing all along, by the way. Uh, but also, you know, yeah, putting some pressure on the government as well, trying to get some answers for Ontarians, you know, fighting for people's lives uh, certainly is, is, is part of that as well. And we do have, I mean, we have legislation, legislation NDP legislation that we tabled uh, quite a while back um, for, the, uh, for the paid sick leave for every Ontario worker that we should have implemented regardless of COVID-19, but that certainly, obviously, many, many health experts and others uh, are are calling for and have been for months and months on end now so that people don't have to go to work sick uh, and spread the virus for fear of of, uh, not being able to pay the bills. I want to talk about uh, education for sure, and I want to talk about, I'm sure you've seen this news out of Quebec with what's potentially coming, and I'll reset that for you and our audience as well. But I want to ask you about Rod Phillips. Uh, you called for his resignation last week in the uh, in the 24 to 30 hours uh, before he got back from St. Bart's. Are you uh, pleased with him? Uh, does he deserve credit for taking responsibility and accountability for, for making uh, a terrible mistake? Well, you know, I, I think he uh, he showed... A significant lack of judgment, uh, and then he he showed significant lack of character by trying to hide the fact uh, that he was out of the country in the first place. And then, of course, Ford for a couple of weeks um, was helping him 
hide that information. He was helping him keep it secret. So the whole lot, I, I really have no time for it. I have no time for uh, the excuses that have been made uh, for for Mr. Phillips. I have no time for people rushing to his uh, side saying, well, he's a great guy. Uh, at the end of the day, it's about your character. It's about your judgment. You've got the second highest job in the province uh, when it comes to the government and, and you're making decisions like this. You know, <laughs> the entitlement is is astounding. Um, you know, the, the, the sense that to do, you do as I say, not as I do, which is, you know, not just Rod Phillips. Let's face it, it was Sam Lusterhoff a couple of months ago. It was Ford himself telling people not to go to the cottage and then going, telling people not to have people uh, over for Mother's Day and then doing that himself, not wearing a mask in a in a big crowded wedding. I mean, look, <laughs> what's good for the goose is good for the gander. I don't understand why these guys think that they can, you know, do whatever they want. Uh, while they're telling the rest of Ontario uh, and, and, and the people of this province to, to buckle down, uh, to sacrifice so much. Uh, and, and then they turn around and, and have their cake and eat it too. It's just, I mean, it's just, no, I have no time for it. I, I, and I have no sense of, um, you know, uh, positivity around the fact that Phillips was forced to do the right thing finally. Do you worry that even across our entire country, Andrea, we're uh, we're losing a sense of uh, public trust with our politicians? And it has been conservative politicians, but it's been liberal politicians. Nikki Ashton traveled uh, from your own party, a Manitoba MP, yep. federal MP, to Greece. Um, it's uh, it, it just seemed like a uh, <laughs> it was like a, an affliction that spread. Uh, pardon the pun uh, with politicians thinking, you know, I've got some free time. Of course, you've all worked hard. Of course, this has been taxing, but it's been taxing on every single Canadian, uh, not just the politicians. Absolutely, absolutely, it has been, and it's been it's been taxing, and people have had to give up so much. Uh, you know, some people canceled their weddings. You know, people we had destination weddings. People had weddings, you know, here in Ontario uh, that, that got, I know somebody personally that canceled her wedding twice uh, because of COVID restrictions, and rightfully so. So those sacrifices are meaningful. And, and I have to say that, uh, that, yes, I'm extremely disappointed with the behavior of, of so many of our, um, you know, of our elected politicians, but there are hundreds and hundreds more uh, that did the right thing. And I think that's where the hope lies. Uh, that there are people that do have integrity, that do bring judgment that's um, that's reasonable, that's thoughtful, that's, that's, that's got the focus of the people of Ontario. And I know that sounds a cliche because Ford uses it all the time. He, he says it but doesn't mean it. Uh, but there are people that are elected who really do have the um, interests of everyday folks at, at their heart. And, and I think I think we can't forget that either. Andrea Horvath, our guest, uh, opposition leader for the NDP. Um, I, I'm, we might differ on this too, in, in that I, I think schools were a success in the fall. Uh, my high school student, uh, went, I know we've talked about this before. I was pleased with the structure. I was pleased with the cohorts. Uh, now again, I, I won't apologize that I live, uh, you know, in Durham region. It wasn't a hot spot. No one in our household has, you know, respiratory problems, smokes, immunocompromised. So we were all for getting our kids back into class. And I thought schools were the last thing that should have closed. I would tell you I feel remarkably different right now. We were talking about 150 cases in the province uh, the day before Labor Day. We're talking, we're, we're going to head towards 4,000 almost certainly before the end of the week. Should any child be in school in this province uh, over the next month of January? Well, I mean, I think that's an excellent question, and I would say that uh, that there are ways to make it, the schools safer. And I think, you, I mean, I think it's wise for you to acknowledge and, and identify um, that there were regional differences. There certainly were regional differences. Mm-hmm. 
but um, but the bottom line is, you know, the education system is a public education system for all kids. Uh, and what we what we could have seen and should have seen are measures that uh, that would have helped with distancing uh, in elementary uh, as well as secondary. So things like uh, reducing the classroom uh, limit to you know 15 kids per classroom, reducing the c- capacity in buses uh, to 50 percent of their uh, maximum load, uh, you know, making sure that there was actual uh, you know ventil- proper ventilation systems, whether it was fixing systems that were problematic or whether it was putting, uh, you know, portable temporary systems in. We've all seen them in our dentist's office and and those, uh, you know, yeah. necessary doctor's appointments we've had to have. Uh, so these things were doable, uh, but the government decided not to spend the money. Uh, and then, of course, as we saw the cases increase, uh, they were putting this asymptomatic testing pilot projects in place. Uh, that should have been happening across all of the hot spots and certainly then rolling out around the province. And those things can still happen, uh, you know, but without those things, I think the risk, as you've identified, is, is significant. Do you do, do you think we follow Quebec's footsteps? Quebec, at 5 o'clock, it's expected today, Premier Legault will announce a three- to four-week lockdown effective Saturday. It'll extend to schools, offices, construction work, and even a curfew. Um, do you support um, measures like that? And do you think Ontario residents uh, and citizens will, as we were talking about, you know, needing to, to buy back in on, on the trust factor, will they, would they buy in to such, uh, such restrictions? Well, I mean, in, in terms of the buy-in, I, I can't answer that question because, I mean, we've seen such a failure by the Ford government to, um, you know, to, to create that level of trust. Uh, I have to say that the Quebec situation is, is really horrifying and, um, and, but it, and it didn't have to be that way and, and we don't have to get there uh, here in Ontario if, uh, if the government would step up to the plate. Uh, there are billions of dollars of, of COVID relief money is sitting on a shelf, you know, waiting to go out the door. It needs to be invested in some of the things I talked about it with education, uh, but it also needs to be invested in long-term care. Uh, we've got to get the Army back in. We've got to get Red Cross back in. And there's money earmarked for Red Cross to come back in, and the government's sitting on it. Um, so, you know, it, 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 that, that money, it, it needs to be spent. You, you, you can't choose to save dollars as opposed to saving lives. And that's what uh, the Ford government's been doing all along. uh, And it's been the wrong strategy. Uh, So, I mean, we may get there. I don't think it's inevitable. uh, But if the Ford government continues the way it has been, always been, always being, um, you know, behind the eight ball, lacking of urgency, you know, chasing this, uh, uh, this pandemic instead of getting ahead of it, even when it comes to vaccinations, uh, then, you know, sadly, it might, uh, it might end up that way. But I really don't think it has to be. Last thing, do we need anything federally from Prime Minister Trudeau? I know it was Quebec and Ontario that asked uh, for federal assistance with the military coming in. Should Justin Trudeau take the measure and say, I- I'm not waiting for you to ask. I- we have a humanitarian crisis. I'm sending them in whether you like it or not. He does have the power to do that. Well, I mean, there there are kind of um, you know issues around the Federation that I think uh, people... Uh, need to acknowledge, um, and I think the more uh, that um, the provincial governments can do their jobs and step up to the plate, uh, the better. It shouldn't be the case that uh, that the federal government has to step in. It should always be the case that on matters of, of health care, um, that the provinces do their jobs. And because Mr. Ford has decided to save, save money instead, well, he'll have the reckoning for that at some point. Uh, to watch him avoid 
the accountability with the commission and trying to shut them down uh, in the midst of this pandemic is is a shameful, I think, uh, a commentary on what his priority is, which is to save his own political bacon and not give Ontarians the answers that they deserve. Andrea Horvath, uh, leader of the opposition. Thank you very much for taking the time uh, with our audience today. I know it's appreciated and uh, I know your time's valuable. Thanks very much. Stay safe. My pleasure. You too, Greg. Thank you. She's uh, MPP, obviously, uh, and uh, leader of the Ontario New Democratic Party. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show podcast on 900 CHML. I will tell you, and you don't have to agree with this. You don't have to corroborate. You don't have to nod your head with me on this. I'm more worried about getting it in the next several weeks than I was at any time in the spring, any time in the summer, any time in the fall. We are amplified. We are out of control, and I, I, I'm, I'm, I know the fatigue is there. I got it, and it's almost, it's almost too much COVID on the radio. I, I'll, I'll give you that, but I can't not do it. You, you have to do the stories that affect the people the most, and you have to use your voice and put other voices on that will advocate to get us through this hell that that we're going to deal with in the next several weeks. It's not all behind us. Some of it's still ahead of us. I want to bring on Dr. Laura Tamblin Watts. She's CEO of CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization. Dr. Watts, thanks for the time, first of all. When I lay out those numbers that, uh, that Tara Moriarty lays out, those probably don't shock you. They might sadden you, but they probably don't shock you, given where our case numbers are at and where our deaths are at per day. Yeah, the numbers are real, and they're getting worse. And that's not news that anyone wants to hear. But just to give you a sense, particularly in long-term care, Now, a third of long-term care homes in Ontario have an outbreak. And this is at a time where we actually have a vaccine and we have rapid testing. So it's not that it's out of control with no response. It's that it's out of control because we haven't done a good job in getting it under control. I know you know who Dr. Nathan Stahl is. He was on the show yesterday. He has been a tireless advocate. Uh, He's a geriatrician. He told me on these airwaves yesterday there are healthcare workers that he's aware of and some work in LTCs as PSWs who have refused to take the vaccine. Do you have messaging? Do you have a uh, an emotional, visceral reaction to hearing that? It's not great news there either. Yeah, the vaccine is the way through. And particularly when you have people who are taking care, hands-on care of our most vulnerable our most immune compromised, our most frail, it's hard to understand how anyone could have that attitude. But this is not a new attitude generally for people. You know, when we are thinking about things like flu or viral pneumonia, we certainly have some of these concerns every single year. But it is incredibly disappointing to hear that. We rely on making sure that our healthcare workers and those who are most vulnerable, like residents in long-term care, are equally vaccinated. Yeah, it's vital. It's vital. Dr. Laura Tamlin Watts, by the way, CEO of CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization. I want to address uh, the military. I mentioned it earlier. Andrea Horvath was on earlier this hour, and it, it was Ontario and Quebec that went and said, we need federal help with this in the spring. What's your best theory to why they haven't asked uh, again? And and I don't. I hope it's not simply for uh, political reasons and political stature that they don't want to look like they've failed as dramatically, if not more. Uh, That's a conversation to have in the second wave than they have the first wave. Why aren't they asking the federal government for more help with our seniors? 
I think it's because they've been asking the Red Cross. And so when they're thinking about where are we going to get immediate help and relief, uh, it seems it possible that the military might come in again. It seems more likely that the Red Cross will. But it's interesting because then you look at how Ontario and Quebec compare. In the first wave, both were in the whistleblower report. Both had the military come in. Both had absolutely heartbreaking details of really a systematic kind of abuse and neglect. But Quebec over the summer made a commitment and followed through on hiring 10,000 what they call orderlies, personal support workers. And right now they have more than five or 6,000, I think, implemented by early fall. Ontario did not do mass hiring and training, despite the fact that we actually have many, many people who are out of work and would like good paying jobs. Mm -hmm. That is part of the situation. Quebec made these jobs available at $49,000 a year, plus pensions and benefits. And as it turns out, they were able to recruit and support an entire cohort of people. Ontario barely, barely added new staff. And the Ontario staff are exhausted and very depleted, while Quebec is in a very different circumstance. So part of the reason that we're in our staffing concern is that Ontario has consistently failed to act. I think about that all the time, what you laid out there, uh, Dr. Tamlin Watts. I, I think about the incentive for for any of us to do the jobs. Um, you know, we all know our, our, our self-worth and our self-value. We all have, you know, <laughs> at some point, all of our employers have said, uh, you know, I've got a number in mind for you. And we decide if it's too, if it's too much or, or if it's too little, rather, if it's acceptable. But I think who would be a university professor for, you know, 26 bucks an hour? Who would teach high school for 19 bucks an hour. Very few people. And we're asking somehow, some way, uh, you know, a, a much, I don't want to say more difficult job entirely, but it's a lot more hands-on. It's It might be really, really rewarding and painful and, and be an emotional roller coaster, but we have not incentivized um, this entire industry uh, in long-term care uh, enough um, compared to what a, what, a, what a GP would make or a plastic surgeon or a dentist even. How do we change it? The good news is this. We actually do know how to change it, and we have examples for where we've increased both the quality of the work and the quantity of the work. And by that, I mean changing part-time hours into full-time hours and guaranteeing people safe, appropriate jobs. And where that happens, unsurprisingly, the quality of care goes up, the quality of satisfaction goes up, and the revolving door slows down. So right now in long-term care, personal support workers are often rotating out of the system at about 18 months. So imagine you hire somebody, you get them trained, they're just in a position where they actually are knowing their work, and and then they leave. And why do they leave? Because we in Ontario, very strangely, pay people by the where of they work as opposed to the what. So what I mean by that is, in acute care, if they get a job in the hospital doing, in many cases, easier work, less hands-on work, they can sometimes get paid twice what they get paid in long-term care, plus our pensions and benefits. And so until we decide to value the worker, 
not the location of the work, we will consistently keep losing people out of the long-term care or home care system to acute care settings. The good news is we can fix it. We just have to do it. And getting there federally, I want to ask about the uh, response. I, I mentioned it to, uh, you know, to, to, to Minister Horvath that, you know, w- when discussing, you know, where we go and, and whether we make this uh, a lot more of an election issue, she made the case that, yeah, it was, it's was it been brought up on the campaign trail before in our province. Where it hasn't been brought up a lot is federally. We all, you know, pivot and think health care is obviously a provincial domain, and it often is. How do we get it more on the map federally? How do we make it an election campaign with everything else, indigenous rights, climate change, uh, the federal deficit? How do we get it into the headlines federally where it just doesn't seem to be right now? It sure wasn't in the last election 15, 16 months ago. This is a matter of public pressure. And we know that having the federal government as part of the solution with national quality care standards and money tied to those standards. So you don't just get the money and then hope and pray that the provinces don't just put it into general revenue, but that this money must be targeted for long-term care and reportable. To do that, we are going to have to make sure the federal government is motivated. It must remain front and center. What we know mm-hmm. about seniors' issues is this. They are always talked about and rarely acted upon. And we have consistently seen blame being put on government's past. And it's hard to hear when we know we've had more than 20 reports in 30 years about the state of seniors' care and that the solutions and answers are extremely well known. The evidence is very robust. It's a lack of political will. It will be up to media and voters and people who are experiencing this suffering to ensure that this government at a federal level doesn't rest back mm. on its heels. And that is a very real risk. Yeah, it's a, and, and I would say it's important for the leaders of the other parties. It's important for Aaron O'Toole. It's important for Jagmeet Singh uh, to do this as well as uh, for the liberals. Uh, Dr. Watts, I can't thank you enough for your time, for your advocacy as well. Uh, and uh, again, all these voices, all these statements uh, keep needing to be amplified. And uh, I'm pleased to do it. Thanks for spending the time with me today. Thank you. Dr. Laura Tamlin Watts, our guest CEO of CanAge, Canada's National Seniors Advocacy Organization. And look, it's it's something. I think it's something that's uh, we feel pretty fragmented and divided politically. Uh, Jack Boland wrote about this in the Toronto Sun today. Um, and here's a quote from a woman, like amazing quote. Catherine Landon is from Richmond Hill. You know, you could say she doesn't have a dog in the fight. She does not have a resident, uh, doesn't have a relative or friend in long term care. But she traveled out to tender care in Scarborough, where, um, you know, the, 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 the flames were burning last week. Uh, and I know there's one in Niagara Falls now. I know there's one in Hamilton now. Uh, but she uh, traveled out, took a sign. Here's the money quote. What is happening right now is horrific. People are being neglected, lied to, and COVID-19 is raging through these places and families can't get through to them. If the facility were an animal shelter or child daycare center, quote, they'd shut it down. They'd be breaking down the doors. And it's true and it's accurate and it's it's more crystallized and put into proper verbiage uh, than I've been able to do in the last several days. And many other people on television, radio have been able to do uh, as well. 
good on Catherine Landon. Again, you know, we need people to step up and say things and for voices to get heard. And when look, we'll all we'll all take a long, we'll get back to normalcy a lot faster if we're advocating and we're moving aggressively in a lot of different ways. And sitting back and not being aggressive right now is really, really problematic. I want to play you some of Far Nasser's interview with the long-term care minister for the province, uh, Dr. Marilee Fullerton. It is, uh, it, it's a master class in obstruction from Dr. Fullerton. And you say, well, why, why play it? Because I, I think you'll get a sense that there is not a accountability and there's not a sense of responsibility or a sense of emotion. Like you want to, you want, you want the Bill Clinton quote, I feel your pain. You want George Bush standing on the rubble at 9 11 with the, with the workers still looking for signs of life in the rubble after the twin towers were destroyed. You're not getting that here. And if you think that image and that, and that, uh, is, is that analogy is too dark, I would disagree if you have a long term care resident in your family or in your close group of friends right now. Foreign Astor on global television last night with the Minister of Long Term Care. Listen to how many times uh, Farah has to get in there to basically keep the thing on track. And she does a great job of it. That's my compliment to her. But it's just all about data and numbers that don't answer the questions for the Minister of Long Term Care. And that's how she rolls. Here's how it was last night. With the experience of the first wave, how did this happen again? Well, you know, it's an unprecedented uh, virus. Uh, the whole world is learning about this. It's continuous learning. And, and we learned many, many lessons from the first wave and acted upon those to prepare for the second wave, whether it was the integration of our acute care sector with our long-term care homes to get the, the rapid deployment uh, uh, teams into the long-term care, whether it was bolstering our staffing to make sure that we took measures to retain our staff with uh, pandemic pay and increases in, in their wages, whether we looked at uh, the IPAC, the infection prevention and control measures, and really had uh, training and dollars behind that training uh, all the way through wave one as we learned about uh, how this virus spreads and uh, through the summer to prepare. So this has been something that we've been working actively and as fast as possible. Hundreds and thousands of people are working to help our long-term care homes. And my heart goes out to everyone who has been affected by this. Minister, it just with, a, with respect, tragedy. with respect, I'm just gonna interrupt you on that because you know, you're saying that you've learned these lessons, but are, are they even working? I mean, we have more homes this time around that have outbreaks than we did in the first wave. Well, let me, I, let me clarify that. You know, it, it is confusing because in order to provide a very rapid response, what we did was make sure that the definition of an outbreak was one resident or one staff. And in about the 219 homes in the last 24 hours that have been in outbreak, 141 of those homes have not a single resident case in them. They are staff that has been prevented from going into the home through our surveillance testing. And so as the community cases rise, uh, what we find is the workers are coming from the community and our surveillance testing is picking them up before they get into the home. And that's why, because it's called an outbreak, even when there are no residents in the home and no staff in the home uh, with a, a, who are positive for COVID, uh, but there's 141 homes in the data 
are are considered in outbreak even though there's no resident case so and even- of those 78 homes about 40 of them um, really have less than five resident cases of, of COVID. So I, I, this is something just, that is confusing. I, I understand mm-hmm. that. and I'm, even, But even if we're talking about 140 homes, I mean, there was oh, time, there was, there was experience from the first wave. What do you say to families who just want some acknowledgement here, who say they were failed by the government, failed by you? Well, you know, when we look at the numbers and we compare the numbers, if we look back in May, uh, when there was 190 homes in outbreak, Uh, During the peak, there was 1,615 active staff cases. Right now, with 219 homes in outbreak, we have uh, a slightly less than that. Um, But in terms of the number of residents affected, we have half as many. And so any, any resident case is one too many. And that's why we're doing the surveillance testing, uh, the rapid testing. Uh, That's why we are doing the specialized care center in Toronto to support our homes in that area. That's why the infection prevention and control measures have been ramped up and dollars have been put behind those and staff has been trained and experts have been hired by the homes. Uh, This has been ongoing and the staffing uh, crises that was preceding COVID, we've been making sure that we are taking measures to, to bolster that. There is not a single home in Ontario that is in a crisis for staffing. And that doesn't mean we're stopped working. Okay, a lot there, Um, but two quick things. It is not a virus we are still uh, learning about that could delay or detract or prevent more action and more aggressiveness from September on. And um, it's it's not a proud thing to say, well, we're moving residents out of a long-term care home into a second place where they are safer. They paid to be in that first place. We're playing first world money for at times third world conditions. And that's not the fault of the staffers. And that's not the fault of the employees or the managers of these facilities. It's a massive, massive problem that's not being acknowledged uh, by the government right now. It isn't. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Craig Brady. Hope you enjoyed it. The Bill Kelly Show podcast is available wherever you get your podcasts from. Thank you again for listening. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast. It's free so you never miss an episode. And make sure you rate and review. And I'll be back with another one tomorrow.